Let's uh, turn together to Hebrews 12, and we're going to finish chapter 12 today, Hebrews 12, verse 25 to 29. Uh, please make sure that you have um, notes. If not, uh, let us know. We'll make sure that you have some. Today we're going to finish chapter 12. Um, we might stay in it another week. It depends on for next week what we're going to do. Um, and then chapter 13 going to be at least one or two sermons. I'm, I'm not going to say in chapter 13 for long. So we might wrap up the book of Hebrews in the next couple of weeks, like uh, three weeks or so, give or take. So I am looking forward. Okay, sit. Wait for Miss Work to come. Um, so I'm looking forward to what we'll have for us afterward. But let's now read Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. The author of Hebrews now is closing his warning to uh, his readers that we started two weeks ago. This is the last part, the third and last part of that warning that he's giving them. And here is what he's telling them. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The phrase once more points to the removal of what can be shaken as of these things having been made created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom can, that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And through thanksgiving, let us worship God in an acceptable manner with fear and trembling or awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Can we say that last part all together out loud? For our God is a consuming fire. You remember what we talked about last week, anybody? We spoke about um, the experience at Mount Sinai versus the experience at Mount Zion. Remember that? And we talked about how the author of Hebrews is encouraging his reader to keep on enduring the persecution and warn them from going back to Judaism by contrasting experiencing the presence of God at the inauguration of the Old Covenant when God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai versus experiencing or encountering the presence of God at the inauguration of the New Testament. We have seen that the, the picture of the Old Testament, the inauguration of the Old Covenant, was filled with fear, trembling, thunder, storm, horrifying experience. Everybody was terrifying. That is complete contrast to the picture that he portrayed for us as far as receiving the New Testament covenant when there's thousands and thousands of joyful angels. When we have the church of the firstborn, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant and a blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Amen? So he draw that fast contrast between these two experiences and now he's building on that and he's saying this. See then, because of that contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, see then that you do not refuse him who speaks. Yeah. Who is that? Him who speaks. God. It's God, right? 
Actually, as a matter of fact, throughout the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews kept on showing us God as the one who speaks, right? What is the first beginning of that book? Hebrews 1.1, it says this. Give me one second. Bart, can you take uh, Micah to go with this part? Let's go see. What is Hebrews 1.1, the very first verse of that book? Anybody remembers? It says this, God, who's in time past, has spoken to us in various ways through the prophets, has in these last days did what? Speak to us. How? Through or in his son, right? So the way the author of Hebrews started the whole book is that God is the one who speaks. And not only that, three times in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews repeated that, that quote from the book of Psalms that says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In the present tense, today, God is still speaking to you. And now the author of Hebrews is coming to his final warning and he's saying, see it. See to yourself that you do not refuse God who is speaking present tense to you. God's still speaking to you. And the author of Hebrews say, make sure you don't refuse or reject God. And then he starts drawing a contrast once again, bringing us back to what, he, what we were talking about last week. And he said, when God inaugurated the old covenant at Mount Sinai, he gave them up the warning from earth, right? And when the people, here is, he says this, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, what he's saying here is this, if the children of Israel in the Old Testament did not escape the judgment of God after they heard his voice warning them from earth, from Mount Sinai, the physical Mount of Sinai, how much less will we escape, right? If we reject him who's not speaking now from earth like the old covenant, but he's warning us from heaven, right? Now, warning us from heaven, what is the author of Hebrews is talking about here? He's talking about the New Testament salvation message, the new covenant salvation message, and he's defining that to us as a warning that is coming to God, to us from God in heaven. Amen? Amen. Look at that. He's saying he is doing what from heaven? He's warning us from heaven, right? If we turn away from him who warns from heaven. Look at that. Yeah. The word warn. You think that the New Testament message, the message of salvation is a message of love, and it is. It's a, an amazing message of love that God will love us so much to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But the author of Hebrews here is saying that the message of the salvation in the new covenant is not just a message of love. It's a message of a warning, right? So when we go out and we try to witness or try to share the gospel with somebody, you indeed, in fact, do what? Not just sharing with them a better way. You're actually warning them that they must do something totally radically different. Other than that, they are going to face massive consequences. Yeah. It's a message. 
Yes, it's a message of love, but it's also a message of warning. You guys are with me? Yeah. Well, people say, well, you shouldn't talk to sinners about hell and about God's judgment because you're like, you're going to set people off. Let's try to attract them to our churches by, you know, just being seeker friendly and super friendly to them or uh, seek sensitive, seeker sensitive or whatever that word is. Seeker sensitive, super friendly, and hopefully they will be attracted to us and start joining our church and ultimately coming to join Christ, right? But this is not what the scripture says, how we should present the gospel. Amen? I think about it this way. This is a, a big building. We have two parts in it. Imagine that we are sitting here, and God forbid, a fire starts in the kitchen at the end of that building. And the whole building is being consumed with fire. And we are just sitting here, not noticing what is happening at the end of the building because we're a little bit far away. Now Regina is in the middle. She goes out. She sees the fire. And now Regina will come to us and she's just so worried about offending us if she tells us that the building is on fire or we're in trouble. So she's trying to tiptoes around us and she's trying to say, hey, you guys, do you know the weather is very nice outside, isn't it? Why don't you guys try and let's go for a walk outside or let's go to the, the playground? And she's trying to tiptoe around the message that she's trying to, to, to tell us because she's so afraid, she's so worried that she might offend us if she tells us, hey, you don't know what you're in for, right? You don't know that the building is on fire, and if I tell them that, they might get offended and they might not like me anymore. But that's what we kind of do, right? When we go out to the lost and tell them, hey, we love you, you're wonderful, how about, you know, um, how about just come and join our church? We have wonderful church buildings, and you're doing great, but let me show you a way that can be slightly better than the one you're doing, and that way is Jesus. This is not what the Bible tells us about the message of salvation. Amen? The message of salvation is a message of warning. You go out and you warn people that Jesus is the only way that God has provided to save us from our sins and unless people repent, there is a fearful expectation of judgment waiting for everyone who's not going to accept Christ. That's what the word of God says. Amen? How can we escape how much less will we escape if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? What the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this. The message of salvation is both a great privilege and also a great responsibility. It's a great uh, advantage and it's a great danger. If you take advantage of the message of salvation that God is giving you and me, you will be saved. You will be a child of God. You will enter into heaven. Now, if you decide to ignore God's salvation message, God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ, there is nothing left for you except the fearful expectation of a fiery wrath of a holy and a righteous God. Amen? How much less, he says, shall we escape? If the children of Israel could not escape the voice of God who spoke to them from earth, how much worse our situation will be if we ignore God who is speaking to us from heaven in the new covenant. Doesn't that remind us of what the author of Hebrews pretty much said the same exact thing back in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. He said this, Therefore, you, the New Testament believer, the New Testament people, must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. And look at this. Why? Why should you pay more close attention to the word of God? Here it is. For if the word spoken through angels proven steadfast, that is the inauguration of the Old Testament covenant, 
angels brought the Ten Commandments to Moses. For if the word brought, um, spoken through angel, proven steadfast that every, every, every single disobedience received a just reward under the minor Old Testament covenant. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great a salvation in the New Testament, which is first spoken to us, not mediated by angels, but by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and was confirmed to us by his apostles who heard it from them. Amen? Amen. Over and over, the author of Hebrews is driving the point. If God punished Israel under the lesser terms, he surely will punish Christians or the New Testament believer, the 20th century folks, 21st one century folks in the world under the New Testament terms. Amen? Amen? Now he moves to verse 26. And in verse 26 he says this. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's three stages in that verse. There's the past, there's the present, and there's the future. You're with me? What is the past? Look at that, verse 26. At that time. What is that time? The time of Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, which we read about last week. His voice shook the earth. Remember that from last week? Everybody was trembling. So that's what happened in the past. Now, in the present, he says this, but now we have a promise, right? In the past, he shook the earth. Now we have a promise. What is that promise? That in the future, once again, God will come back and he's not going to only shake the earth the same way he did it at Mount Sinai, but also he will shake the heavens and the earth. You guys are with me? Past, present, and future. Past, we all know. Let's talk about the present. He said this, but now he has promised. Think about that. We talked about the promise of God over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews. Before, we have seen that God has promised rest to his people in chapter 4, verse 1, right? And we have seen that God has promised eternal inheritance, and that's in chapter 9, verse 15. We also have another promise today, but it's not a promise of rest, and it's not a promise of eternal inheritance. What kind of promise is it? It's a promise of eternal judgment, right? Think about that. It is the promise of God through and through the book of Hebrews that the author of Hebrews kept going back to to encourage his people, the, the readers, to stick with God and not abandoning God. He keeps saying, God is faithful. He who promised don't give in. Don't cave in under persecution because the promises of God will surely come to pass, right? Now, the promise of rest will surely come to pass. The promise of eternal inheritance will surely come to pass. And the promise of judgment also will surely come to pass. The question is, which promise would you like to take from God? Would you like to take his promise of rest and inher eternal inheritance? Or would you like to take his promise of eternal judgment? And he says this, in the future, God will do something else. He said, once again, I will not only shake the earth, but I will also shake the heavens. 
Now, the author of Hebrews did something very clever here. He's playing with the Old Testament with us. He looked at the events of Mount Sinai when God inaugurated the Old Covenant, when God shook the earth. And the presence of God was associated so much with holiness and awe and terrifying experience. So the author of Hebrews looked at that and he built on it to teach us that almost the same experience will happen again in the future, that the exact same presence, holy presence of God, that terrified the children of Israel in Mount Sinai, that is the foundation, that's a type, that's a picture of what's going to ultimately happen once again, once more. But when it happened once more, it's not going to be at that low scale when God shook the earth, but it will happen at a fast, much larger scale when God will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Amen? Amen. Shaking the earth and the heavens throughout the Old Testament is a concept that is always associated with the judgment and the wrath of God. We see that over and over again. Isaiah 13, 13. Here is what Isaiah said. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in that day, his burning anger. Shaking the heaven and the earth is always associated with the judgment of God. Joel 2, 10. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grows dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Mm -hmm. Talking about the judgment of God that will ultimately happen when God comes to establish his kingdom. However, the quote from Hebrews 12, 26 here, once again, I will not shake only the earth, but also the heaven. That's a, a quote, a direct quote here from Haggai 2, 6. That's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And here is what Haggai 2, 6 says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land when God comes for judgment for the nations that reject and dis disobey him. You guys are with me? Yeah. So Hebrews 12, 26 is a quote, direct quote almost for, with the T, a couple of minor differences, to Haggai 2, 6. So the author of Hebrews here, do you see what he's doing? He's using the events of Mount Sinai when God shook only the earth and he's building with from that a picture that is also found in the Old Testament of God shaking not only the earth but the heavens and the earth as the, the day of judgment comes, this is what the Lord will do. And he's saying, now pay even far much closer attention to the voice of God because the day will come when he once more will not just shake the earth but he will shake both the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 27 and almost the, the first part of verse 28. Now the author of Hebrews is preaching his message on these verses. On the verse from Haggai 2.6. And we have seen the author of Hebrews doing this over and over and over again. That's his style. He uh, gets a quote from the Old Testament. And then he elaborates on it for a chapter or two or paragraph or two. We've seen that so many times, right? So verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28, he's preaching. He's telling us his comments on Haggai 2.6. And he said this. The phrase once more, so he's now picking up on only these two words once more from Haggai 2.6. And he says, the phrase once more points to what? The removal of what can, can be shaken as of the things having been made so that so that what cannot be shaken may remain. 
And then he said in the beginning of verse 28, therefore, since we have receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So here, verse 27, the beginning of verse 28, the author of Hebrews is drawing a contrast between two things, mainly the things that can be shaken versus the things that cannot be shaken. You guys are with me? So let's look into this. First of all, the things that can be shaken, he said, if we gonna, if God said once more, then that that means we should removal of the things that can be shaken, right? But then when it cannot be shaken, he says, the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Do you see the first contrast? One gonna be removed, the other one will never be removed. It will always remain. The things that can be removed, he described it to us as the things that can be shaken. In the context, what did he just tell us will be shaken? The heavens and the earth, right? He said that in the day of judgment, when God once more come, he will shake both the heavens and the earth. And he said these things can be shaken. It will ultimately be removed. And then he explains these things to us as it is really everything that could or have been created by God. Everything that has been created will ultimately be shaken and will ultimately be removed. Amen? Now, the contrast of that is the things that cannot be shaken. What is that? It is the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Because he just said in verse 28 at the beginning of that verse, since we are receiving the things that cannot be shaken, receiving what? The kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful. You guys are with me? So the things that cannot be shaken from his perspective here, what he's preaching on is the actual kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom of God that will never be removed. The true children of God who have been sealed by the spirit of God who will inherit the kingdom of God and nothing will shake that from them. Amen? Amen? So two things. The things that can be removed, that's the physical world that we have and the things that will remain and that's the spiritual kingdom of God that can never be shaken. Amen? Amen. Now, the author of Hebrews found in the book of Haggai, again, verse 20 and 23, kind of a foundation for his notes here, for his sermon here that he's telling us about. In Haggai 2, 20 to 23, we're going to see the exact same principles. We're going to see the things that can be shaken that would be removed versus the things that can never be shaken. That's the kingdom of God that can never be removed. Let's look at that contrast. In verse 20 to 22, in chapter 2, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. And he said, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Let me pause. Let me give you a background. Zerubbabel was the political leader of that time. Haggai and Zechariah, two minor prophets, were the prophets at that time. And these are the people that were commissioned by God to build the second temple right before the Old Testament pretty much finished. That's the last historical events we have in the Old Testament. So Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the prophet, are aiding, helping Zerubbabel, the political leader, to build the temple the second time after the temple of Solomon has been destroyed. So here, verse 21, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to do what? I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of 
of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and the driver horses and their riders with fall each by the sword of his brother. That's the things that are going to be shaken. The tangible kingdom that the people have, the earthly kingdoms that the people have when God came to execute his judgment, right? Now look at the things that cannot be shaken. Verse 23, on that day, the same day when God going to come and shake the heavens and the earth. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shelaiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Do you guys see that? On the day of judgment, according to Haggai, there was two things. The things that are going to be shaken when God comes to establish his kingdom. And that's pretty much the evil, wicked, physical system that all can be shaken and going to be removed. And then will be established the spiritual kingdom of God that can never be removed. From that book of Haggai, the author of Hebrews found his foundation, so to speak, to preach his sermon that this applies to you and me. You and me are now receiving a kingdom that can be shaken. We're now receiving something from God that can be shaken. We're receiving something that can never be shaken. That's the actual spiritual kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And then in verse 28 saying this, Now that you know that you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, what should you do? Let us be thankful. Thankful for what? Thankful that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? He's not saying you better have a thankful attitude overall, otherwise God will smite you dead. He's not talking about that. He's saying let us be thankful that our kingdom, what we are receiving from God, can never be shaken because it is founded, it's tied up to a God who can never be shaken. Amen? He says this, let us be grateful, let us be thankful that our kingdom, our inheritance, who we are, can never be shaken. And then he said this, and through thanksgiving, let us be thankful. How? How can we be thankful? How can we express our gratitude to God? Here it is. And through thanksgiving, let us what? Worship God. Yes. This is how you express your gratitude to God according to the author of Hebrews. Now the, the word here, let us worship, can have either way. Can either mean worship as if like you praise, you worship God, or it can also mean to serve God. Because the word to serve God in a religious atmosphere, like performing uh, religious um, sacraments and stuff like that. That's the idea of the word. So it can imply either, either to literally worship or to serve God. Yeah. Amen? Now, that word, let us worship, let us serve God, was used before in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 14. What did the author of Hebrews say this? He's contrasting the blood of Jesus with the blood of goats and blood. And he said the blood of goats and, 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 um, and bulls. And he said this, if the blood of goats and bulls in the Old Testament can cleanse the filth of the flesh. And then he said, how much more? Remember that? How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit has offered himself up to God, will do what? Will cleanse your conscience from dead works so that you cannot serve the living God. It's the exact same word that he's saying here. So in other words, the author of Hebrews is saying this. 
The, the way we express our gratitude to God is through the act of service, the act of worship that we offer a almighty God. But he, then he says, don't even dare to forget that the only reason you can even approach and serve God is because of the blood of Jesus that can cleanse your conscience from every filthy sin. Amen? He says this, let us through thanksgiving worship God. And then he says, let's worship, let's serve God in an acceptable manner. Yes. Something that it pleases God, acceptable manner. What is that acceptable manner to God? Here it is. In fear and trembling. In fear and in awe. Yes. And dread. Literal, scary. Be scared a bit when you try to serve God. That's what he's trying to tell us here. Now, do you want God's word to blow your mind away a little bit? Nobody? Anybody wants God's word to blow your mind a little bit? The word fear. Let us serve God. Let us worship God with fear. That word fear, eupalias, um, was mentioned one more time in the whole New Testament. That's it. Two times. Here and another incidents in the New Testament. And the other time this word was used is in Hebrews 5, 7. Look at that. It talks about Jesus, remember, when he was in the days of his earth and how he prayed and offered supplications to him who can, who can rescue him from the death. And then it says this in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayer and supplication with loud crying and tears to the God who's able to save him from death. And he was heard, why? Because of his godly fear. That's the exact same word that the author of Hebrews used here, how you serve God with that kind of godly fear that Jesus has shown God when he was here on earth serving and ministering to the Father. Mm. And think about this. This is what is acceptable to God. In other words, the author of Hebrews is telling them the level that you can pass with God, the level of fear, the level of awe that you should show God while you serving Him, the only level that pass by God's standard is the level that Jesus has used to serve God during His earthly life. I don't know about you. This is for me. It was like, man, I'm out, way out of line. I am way out of line. But this is what is acceptable before God. To be as dedicated, as fearful, as committed to obey the commandment of God as Jesus himself was. Yeah. I remember that of Noah, remember? Right? We're going to talk about that. When God commanded him, he moved in holy fear. Yeah, absolutely. You're stealing my sermon, man. You're stealing my sermon. <laughs> so you follow me so far? Absolutely. We're going to talk about that in a second. So... Uh, the word that the author of Hebrews is using here that we should serve God with fear is the exact same word that describes how Jesus served God when he was living here on earth. That's the standard. That's the way that cannot be acceptable before God. Anything less, it might not be acceptable before God. I don't know about you, but when I was reading that yesterday, I'm like, man, I am so doomed. Because yeah. I am nowhere close to Jesus. You guys are with me? But this is what God accepts from us. This is his standard. Now, the word, the idea of fear, now we're not talking about the exact same word. We're talking about the idea of fear in the book of Hebrews is associated with three things. We have seen that. It's different Greek words, but the idea of fear is associated with 
We have seen that the idea of fear and trembling is associated with the presence of God. Remember that last week when Moses was at the mountain and he, the, the, the scene was so scary that Moses himself said what? I am so scared. I am full of fear and trembling. You guys are with me? So we see here that the fear is associated with the presence of God. But number two, we see that fear is associated with the command of God. That's what Emmanuel is talking about. Hebrews 11:7. It says this: By faith, when Noah was commanded or was instructed about things are not yet seen, moved with what? With godly fear, he went and he built the ark. It's the exact same root word of what he's talking about here in Hebrews 12:27. So fear here is associated with the command of God. The idea is that Noah has so much reverence, has so much awe, has so much trembling at the word of God that he did not care what kind of opposition he will face. All that he cared about is to obey and accomplish what God has commanded him. Amen? Yeah. We need some of that fear. Yes. And the last time when we see the word fear in the book of Hebrews, we see that fear is associated with sinners falling into the hand of God. Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing, the author of Hebrews says, to fall into the hand of the living God. Amen? And I tell you, even though Hebrews 10.31 talks about unsaved people falling in the hand of God, I feel like we as Christians should fear God in all three ways. We should be trembling at the presence of God. We should be trembling at the command of God. Whenever God says something, you say, yes, sir, I'm going to do it. There is no way I will not do it. If he say, go and make disciples, you say, I'll do it. I don't care if people mock me. I don't care if people make a fool of me. I will obey because I am afraid. I fear God more than I fear man. Amen? Yeah. We should be fearful a bit. We should approach God with trembling and fear because of his holy presence and we're a bunch of sinners I tell you that much and then we should fear God fear his command and his word to us we should obey it no matter what and we should fear that one, one day God will judge us if you're a Christian if you're a born again Christian you're going to heaven I'm not questioning that nevertheless you're going to stand before Christ one day and you're going to give an account to him for every even idle word that you have said it's, it's coming and we all should have some dose of healthy fear that we one day gonna stand before Christ and we better do it right. You guys are with me? Amen. Let us worship God in acceptable manner. What is that acceptable manner? In fear and trembling. Why? Here it tells us right after that. For, now he's explaining to us the reason. For our God is what? Consuming fire. The only reason why we should fear God and show him trembling is because of who God is. It's because of his person. It's because of his nature. Our God is what kind of God? He is a consuming fire. Yes. That's a quote right here from Hebrews uh, 12:29. That's a quote actually from Deuteronomy 4:24. Now Moses is talking to the children of Israel and he's telling them, "The Lord your God is cons is a consuming fire, a jealous God." Now the author of Hebrews changed something very important when he quoted that verse in the book of Hebrews. Can somebody help me out here? What does the book of Deuteronomy says? You he says what? For your God, right? That's what Moses said. But how did the author of Hebrews quoted it? He said our God. 
So he changed the pronoun from yours to ours to make sure that not just him, but his readers, and not just his readers, but even you and me are all included in that warning that our own God, not somebody else's God, but the very God that we're here to worship this morning is what kind is he? He's a consuming fire. I don't know about you, but even for my kids, I always tell them not to mess with fire. This is one thing you don't play with fire, right? When they come close to the, the stove, I'm like, don't go there. I don't want you to play with the fire. Because coming close to fire can be an extremely dangerous thing. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is driving to his readers and to us. Our God is consuming fire, so don't mess with fire. Because if you do, you're going to end up being burned. Now, closing thought. Chapter 13. Uh, I think, I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. We might stay here for a little bit or start chapter 13. I'm not sure. But when we start chapter 13, you're going to see that chapter 13 is mainly some practical um, application of how they should live their life as Christians with some theology here and there. So a lot of commentators, a lot of people who study the book, they kind of argue, give or take, not 100% accurate, but the point is valid, is that the theology of the book of Hebrews really ended up in chapter 12. And then chapter 13 was, were more like, was more like closing remarks. You know, here and there, just uh, some random thoughts. Just make sure you do this and do that just before, before I, I leave you guys. That's kind of what's going on. So think about that. If that is true, which kind of, kind of makes sense a little bit, Everything that the author of Hebrews has been telling us since we have started studying this the last year and a half or so, everything he has been telling us is leading us to that last quote in Hebrews 12, 29, that our God is what? Consuming fire. That's the absolute climax of the argument that the author of Hebrews started telling his readers since he started in Hebrews 1.1 when he said that God has spoken to us in his son. Amen? That tells you that this phrase of the utmost importance to you and me that our God is consuming fire. When you worship him, know that he is consuming fire. When you come to his presence, know that that he is consuming fire. When you don't obey his command, know that he is consuming fire. And know that you and I, once day, coming day, we're all going to stand before him to give an account to a God who's nothing less than a consuming fire. Because he is consuming fire. Let's be thankful. There's no question about it. We're not, we don't have to be scared. Because our kingdom will not be shaken. But the fact that we receive a kingdom can never be shaken. Empower us. Enable us to serve God. How? With uh, carelessness. And uh, whatever. Do whatever you like. Does it say that? No. You serve God with how? With fear. And trembling. Because our God is consuming fire. Can we pray?